Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Over, the next, over this week and the next two weeks, we're going to be uh, kind of, we do this every year, and we don't apologize for doing it every year, we're going to be looking at um, uh, this thing, or what we're calling family traits, what defines us as a, as a as village. Um, uh, every family has its own characteristics, I think, you probably know yours. Um, if you were to spend time with my family, uh, you would very quickly learn that we're all very loud. Um, if you spend a bit more time with us, you might think that we hate each other as well, because we tend to shout at each other a fair bit, um, but it's all good fun. Um, when we go out for dinner in a restaurant, we're by far the loudest group. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There could be a stag party in the corner. We'd still be louder. It's just the way it is. Um, but if you spend a bit more time with us, you'd probably quickly see that, we're, uh, that we are quite sentimental, um, that you know things like Christmases and birthdays mean a lot to us. Uh, we hold on to things, everything's, we love reminiscing about the past, and we're very, very sentimental. But my point kind of is to just show that every family has things that define them, like traits that are just, are just there because of who they are. Um, and our church family is no different. Um, one of our core values is church as family. Um, this is what we see in the Bible. It's not the church. Church isn't just something you attend. It's not, you know, we we don't go to church. We don't go to MC. We 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 are the body of Christ. We are a family. Uh, God is our Father. This is what it says in the Bible. We are we are brothers and sisters in a very very real sense. Um, in fact, the relationships that we have now because of Jesus will last far far will last for eternity much longer than than our kind of biological relationships that we have now. And because we're a family, we're going to spend the next three weeks considering uh, what our family is like, uh, what characterizes us, what makes us us. And so if, you're, if you are new to Village, if you're, new, if you're just checking us out, then this is a really, really good time for you to hear this, or a really good time for you to be here, uh, because we're covering uh, the three foundations of our church, three things that make us us. So maybe you've seen the, the banner outside or you've been on our website, and, and on that there is a, a, our vision statement, and it's what we want to define village as a church, um, and this is what it says. It says, uh, village, village Church, Belfast, is a it desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. We desire to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, 
each other and our city as we join God in the renewal of all things. Um, it's not a random thing. It's not a random statement. It's not something we pulled out of the air. It's based on, on these three components which define us, uh, which I think the Bible wants to define every church, uh, gospel, community, and mission. So that's what we're going to look, like, look at over the next three weeks is today, gospel, then uh, community, then mission. We desire to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus. That's gospel. We, we want to love each other. That's community. And we, want, and we want to love our city as we join God in renewal of all things. That's mission. Um, so the next three weeks, we'll look at each one of those building blocks. Uh, so yes, if you're new, good time for you to be here. Uh, so the first thing we're going to look at is gospel. That's, our one, that's, our, that's what we're looking at today, that we are shaped by the gospel. In our vision statement being gospel-shaped comes first. It means like to be formed by the gospel. And what I want to do this morning is just explain why being gospel-shaped, why the gospel is the very, uh, it's the first one, it's the most important one, it's the thing that we want to characterize us as a church. And, and to be honest, uh, sometimes I know when you come to a gallery and you want to like get tidbits to like go out, like, I want, oh, if I have tips to how to be a good Christian this week, maybe you might get some of that this week. It's not super practical, but here, here's, what I, here's what I hope and pray is happening this morning. That by the time we finished here, um, that we'll just be amazed by the gospel, that we'll just realize, wow, this is what God has done for us. Um, that's kind of my hope and prayer this morning. So I want to first start by answering this question, what is the gospel? We talk about a lot. We say that word a lot in village. We're gospel-shaped. We say the gospel all the time. But that means nothing if we don't really know what that word means, right? Um, so the word itself, gospel, just means good news. That's simply that. It's an announcement of something good that has happened. Gospel. Um, it's become to mean something more, I think, in our culture. Like you say, you know, don't take that as gospel. Like don't take that as like truth. But but actually, it's good news. It, it, that's that's what the word means. So what is the good news? Well, the good news is simply this: the good news is, is that, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and he ascended to heaven. That's the good news. This is how the apostle Paul defines it in in one Corinthians fifteen, and he's 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 kind of urging the church there. He's saying, remember, this is the most important thing. And this is what he says. He said, I would remind you, my brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What was that? Well, listen to what he says. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. That's what it is for Paul. This good news is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again. That's it. So the good news is that Christ died, he was buried and that he rose again for our sins. And so the next question we need to ask well, is like, well, okay, so what? Why, why does that matter? Why, 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 is it, why should it be the thing that's important, that's first important that Paul says? In other words, we need to think about, well, what does it matter that Jesus, this person, died and was buried and then came back to life? I mean, it's pretty cool that this miracle happened, but so what? And that's where I want to go to uh, Ephesians 2, like our passage that, that Rachel read for us this morning. I know I say this a lot. I've already said it to Rachel once this morning that this is one of my absolute favorite pieces of, of Scripture. Like, I just, I just think it's incredible. I say that a lot. I say it about almost every Sunday. This, I love this. This is my favorite passage. This actually might be, um, 
And there's three things I want to see in here, and three things that we need to see why the gospel is so important, why it's the first thing, why it actually matters that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sins. So firstly, I think in this passage what we see is uh, Paul, Paul paints this picture of who we once were. And really in that, he's showing us our need for the gospel. Who we once were. Uh, Paul is writing to this church in the ancient city of Ephesus. Um, and we're not really going to go into much more detail than that. It was just a church like us, a small church like us, in a medium-sized city. Um, and Paul's writing to them. And he's trying to show them just exactly what God has done. He's like, this should be the most important thing. For your church, this should be the most important thing. Uh, because he says that the gospel is, what is going to be what sustains them when hard time comes. It, it's going to be the thing that leads them through difficult times. Uh, and not just difficulties in their life, but also maybe persecution as well. When, when they get a hard time, or we say a hard time, but when they even worse than a hard time uh, for being a Christian. So whatever it is, whether it's sickness or grief or persecution, whatever it is, we're going to be much better placed to, 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 to face life's trials, any of them, when we know exactly who we were, who we are, and what God has done for us. And so he starts by saying uh, this kind of negative thing, because he, he wants them to appreciate the magnitude of what God has done by, by, by reminding them and starting with the magnitude of our sin. So this is what he says at the very beginning, verses 1 to 3. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he doesn't really paint a very good picture, does he? Who were we? We were, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. In other words, we were corpses. We were dead bodies. We had no life within us. There was nothing just but decay and rot. And why does Paul start with this? I think the answer is because when, when someone is dead, they have no way of helping themselves. You can't stop being in the condition of being dead. A dead person just can't decide to not be dead anymore. A dead person doesn't even know that they're dead. And this is what Paul's trying to convey. He's saying that, that we were completely helpless outside of Christ. There was nothing that we could do to improve our situation. And more than that, we didn't even know that our situation needed improved. We were dead, and we didn't even know we were dead. And then not only that... Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be graphic, but like uh, a corpse's only path, a corpse's only future is decay. It's rot. And he's saying that, that that was the same for us, that, that without God's intervention, that was our path. Our path was destruction. We were headed to destruction. Our fate of death was sealed, if you like. We were dead. So what about the trespasses and the sins? Because this sounds like old-fashioned language, and I guess in a way it is. Um, most of the time, it says, it says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walked. So this is something that we actively walked in. And most of the time that we see sin is the bad things that we do, the lying, the stealing, the cheating, the saying bad words, all that kind of stuff. Um, but but what, we see for, 
what we see from this word dead is that, that sin isn't so much our actions as it is a condition. Sin is a condition. Our bad actions are symptoms of our, of our condition. Our sinful actions are a result of our sinful condition. Uh, I had this analogy of uh, you don't, I, I feel a bit scared to use it actually, you don't like cough and sneeze because you have a cold, <laughs> but you can't talk about coughing and sneezing anymore. But the analogy is this, you don't cough and sneeze because you have a cold. No, you don't, sorry, coughing and sneezing doesn't give you the cold. You cough and sneeze because you have the cold. And likewise, we're not sinners because we're sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's it. That's who we were. We walked in the ways of trespasses and sins. It's all of us. That's every single person that's ever been born. And outside of Jesus, we were completely helpless to do anything except sin. And, and the problem then, one of the things that you'll come up against is that this goes, this goes against most in fact, all, I would say all modern philosophy, doesn't it? The world just doesn't think this way. The predominant worldview is that people are basically good, that, that kind of left to our own devices, we will progress and, and, and create a, a better society and we'll somehow achieve greater heights. But I mean, we only have to look around and see that that's not true, right? Things don't just get better on their own. Sure, we advance in technology and medicine and engineering and science and art and all those things, and those things are good. But that's God's grace to us, even in the midst of our falling away. Look at history. Things haven't really gotten better, have they? In fact, we don't even have to look at history or the world around us. We just look at our own lives. I mean, I'll even talk about my own life. I'm just prone to self-destructive behavior. How many times do I say things? I'm like, why? What have I just said? Why am I saying that? Like, you just, we just, we can't help but destroy our own lives. And the Bible says that we are born dead in our sins, and we're by nature children of wrath, unable to help ourselves on our way to decay and destruction. And I've used this analogy before. I think I have here anyway. Um, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like. Well, I'll tell the story. A um, number of years ago when I was a student, uh, I was moving out of a student flat and we were clearing out the fridge and there was like the mystery Tupperware. Have you heard me talk about this before? I don't know. There was the mystery Tupperware in the back of the fridge and nobody really knew what was in there, but it was sealed up so no one ever really bothered like looking at it. And then we were moving out so we had to look at it. And then I decided I'd open it just to see and I nearly vomited, wish I hadn't opened it. But it turned out it used to be chicken. <laughs> uh, it was now just a gloopy mess. Um, but imagine if you just like, there's some leftover chicken in the, in the fridge and you go, well, I wonder how long that's been in there. So you take it out and smell it. Um, and you go, well, ooh, well, there's something wrong with this chicken. It doesn't smell very good. So I'll maybe put some spice on it and I'll maybe uh, put some, you, you know, herbs on it and make it smell nice, you know. But that's, that's, not, the, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that the, the meat smells bad. The problem is that, it, that it's decaying, that it's dead. It was dead when you put it in the fridge in the first place. And at least you hope you can preserve it for a little while. But because it's dead, it's already decaying. That was like us. There's nothing we could do. In our nature, we were already decaying. And we might smell okay for a wee while. We might even try to cover up the rot with, you know, being good moral people, by loving our neighbors well, by, by being religious, by, by, by coming to gatherings like this and, 
uh, maybe even given to the church. We might try and cover up those, that, that, that rotten smell, but behavior doesn't change anything. It just changes the outside. It doesn't deal with the problem in the inside because you're dead. And there's one more part of this I want to pull out, who we once were before I move on. In verse 3, he says this. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm, I'm laughing because children of wrath sounds like, a, sounds like a really bad metal band, I think. Um, children of wrath. Or a really good metal band, I don't know. Um, but what does it mean? What does it mean to be children of wrath? Well, let me explain this for a bit because I want to get this gospel thing really, really, I really want us to understand this um, before we move on to the next couple of weeks. We are descendants of Adam. Um, and as such, when we're born, we inherit the results, the curse of the fall. We inherit the disobedience of our family line. Just like I inherit the loudness, the baldness, the, you know, whatever it is of my family. I, 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 we inherit that. And so we're born with a nature that is cut off from God. And Paul says that we are, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. And so we require a new birth. We need a new family line. We need a new nature. But here's the thing. We're totally unable to do anything about that ourselves. We're helpless. And even more so, we're dead. So we don't even, need that we, we don't even know that we need that. We need a new family. We need a new family line, and we can't do anything about it ourselves. And so this is who we were before Jesus. We were dead. We walked in trespasses and sins. We didn't even know that we needed help, and we had this sinful nature. And if I had to stop there this morning, that would be pretty terrible. But it doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. Because the next thing he was on to do, and what I, I want to do is to show us what God has done. And this is the work of the gospel itself, what God has done for us. I'm going to read the middle section of this again, from verse 4 to verse 9. He says, but God, but God. Imagine that, completely helpless. And then he says, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might be able to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved and through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that nobody can boast. These two words, but God. You were helpless but God. You were helpless, but God. Someone that's completely helpless can't help themselves until someone intervenes. And here, from our place of, of helplessness, we weren't hopeless because God intervened, but God intervened. He came, if he came into that tomb where we were rotten and decaying, and he pulled us out and he breathed life into us again. That's the analogy that Paul's using here. Because he loves us, because he loves you. God loves you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And you hear the words it says here, he loves you with a great love because of the great love with which he loved us. And because of that great love he loves us with, he raised you from death to life. Nobody else can do that for you. 
Sure, somebody might save your life. Sure, somebody, you might, might feel like that. Oh, you know, I, I, my partner saved my life. You know, I was in a really bad way and they saved my life. No one's ever brought you back from death to life in this permanent, everlasting way. God loves you. I want you to grasp that for a second. Even if we just stop there, God loves you. Do you think about that? Do you think about God loves you? Most of us spend all our time, I need to try and figure out how to be a good Christian. Just God loves you. Just stop trying to figure all that stuff out. That'll come. God loves you. Meditate on that. Because of that love. And by the way, he had no reason to love us. Um, Haley and I were talking about this recently. We, we, were in the, we were driving up Donegal. We had a long car journey, and we were listening to a sermon or something. Or Probably I was, and Haley was getting bored because I like to be nerdy even when I'm off. But anyway, um, he, he was talking about, this guy was talking about, um, you know, if you say, to, if, if I say, if you say to your husband or your wife or your partner or your friend, I love you because, uh, you know, uh, you're really good at your job, you're really kind, you're, you're really good looking, like, you know, all these kind of, you can list all their attributes. That's not the same as just saying, I love you just because I love you. Do you know what I mean? Nobody wants to hear, well, I mean, imagine Haley was like, I love you because of your great body. Well, I'd be like, well, that's not going to last very long. Also, are you blind? Um, but do you know what I mean? Like, but if Haley says to me, I love you just because I love you, there's a security in that. You don't need a reason. That's why God loves us. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us times a million, times infinity, because he loves us. And so he has made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. We were rotten flesh. And he, God, has made us alive together with Christ. We've been raised up with Jesus. Most of us as Christians, we, we go, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but we don't really understand what this means. It means that you were dead and now you're alive. You've been, you've been raised up to heaven with Jesus. Think about that for a second. Just in the way that God brought Jesus back from the dead, he's brought us back from the dead. He's brought us from death to life. And if you're a Christian this morning, if you're trusting Jesus, then you need to realize that this is a miracle. It's a miracle. You've been raised from the dead. Becoming a Christian... Listen, it's not like just deciding to choose to live your life with a new set of values and, 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 you know, whatever, outlook on life. That's not what it is. It's not like, well, I want to get healthier, so I'm going to start eating a salad and I'm sort of going to start going to the gym. That's, that's not what being a, becoming a Christian is. Becoming a Christian is a miracle, and it's a miracle you could never perform for yourself. Becoming a Christian is, be, is being raised from death to life. And it's something that God has done because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. Jesus entered into death not so that he could be raised from the dead, but so we could be raised from the dead. You ever think about that? Why did Jesus die? Not so he could be raised from the dead, but so that we could be raised from the dead. He went into death so that he could pull us up out of death with him. And when, when, when we get to Easter, we'll talk about this in great depth, but when, when he walked, when, when, G, when that stone was rolled away on that first Easter Sunday morning and Jesus walked out of that tomb alive, he brought me and you with him. Incredible. Incredible. And notice, I want you to notice here that, that as Paul is writing this stuff, he's writing in the past tense. 
It's in the past tense because Paul is talking about what Jesus has already done for us. He's not talking about some gradual religious process of becoming more holy and becoming more uh, pious. And, well, you know, as I learn my catechisms or as I, you know, uh, learn to say all my prayers and all this kind of stuff. He's talking about what God did once, what Jesus did once and for all. Peter, another one of Jesus' friends, says this in 1 Peter 3. He says that, For Christ suffered once for sins. Once for sins that he might bring us to God. And he also goes on to say that, that, that he was put to, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered once for sins. It's something he has done for us. The righteous one, Jesus, died for us, the unrighteous. On the cross, we talk about this almost every week, Jesus became our sin. He died a sinner's death. He was treated by God like a son of disobedience. So Paul says in there, the sons of disobedience. He was treated like a child of wrath. He bore our sin in his place. And this is, what the, this is the amazing grace of God, right? Imagine that. We deserve punishment. We deserve God's wrath. But he takes it all for us. The only reason Jesus died is because of our sin. Make no mistake. He only died because we needed to be rescued. And then uh, notice again, he says that not that, that we will be seated in the heavenly realms, but listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, and raised us up with him, that's raised you and me up with Jesus, and seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, and, and if you're a Christian this morning, in God's eyes, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You have a place of honor. You're already there, in a sense. You couldn't be in a higher place of honor. You're, you're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And notice that he says that we are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. We are in Jesus. This is what we call union with Christ, that we are one with Jesus. One of the, thing, one of the amazing things that happens when we become a Christian is that we are united with Jesus. And that means that... that All that was ours, all our our shame and all our guilt and all our sin and all our unfulfillment and and all our our sense of of, of failure, all those things became Jesus's. And and in that one moment, everything that is his, all his glory and honor and eternal life and and, and his, his peace and power and glory and honor and mercy and love all become ours. It's what we call the the great exchange. Everything that was ours becomes his and everything that was his becomes ours. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. All the blessings that God the Father has heaped on the Son become ours. We share in his inheritance. We already read that in Psalm 16 this morning we prayed. Like what an inheritance we have. Everything that is owed to Jesus because of who he is as the Son of God is now ours. We are seated in the heavenly realms because we are in Christ. God has made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, we were helpless without any idea that we even needed help. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has brought us to life. And not only brought us back to life, he's given us the place of honor. Incredible. And this changes everything. We're literally not the same anymore. We have a new nature. And this is why we need to start with the gospel. Because remember I said we needed a new nature. 
Because when we, when, when we uh, believe in Jesus, we are united with him and we take on his nature. Gospel literally means the start of our lives. It's when we really start living. And so we can't help but be shaped by the gospel. No more than we can help being shaped by our DNA. We have been given life. We are in the family of God, and this is what makes us who we are. And then Paul says, well, let's not stop about who who we were uh, and what God has done. Let's look at who we now are. We're shaped by the gospel. So we know the message of the gospel is good news, right? That we were dead and now we're alive. That's pretty good news. Um, But what does that actually mean for our lives now? That's what we all really want to know, isn't it? Um, What does it mean to be shaped by the gospel? We talk about it all the time, being gospel-shaped. But listen to this. In verse 8, he says, for, grace you have, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Paul uses uh, this, we phrase this sentence here again. He says, you have been saved. It's that perfect past tense. It means it's done. There's nothing more to add to it. You can't, it's not like an ongoing thing. There's nothing to contribute, nothing to add. And see, we sometimes think of salvation like this, and I think you might recognize this. It's pretty common. That I was drowning in, my, in a sea of my sin, and Jesus came by in his, you know, Jesus boat. I don't know what that is, but like he threw in a lifeline and, and pulled, that, pulled me in and saved me. And that sounds good because Jesus saved me. But that's actually not what has happened. That's actually not what the gospel is. The, the gospel is that you weren't just drowning and struggling in the sea and waving for help. The gospel is that you were dead, floating face down in the water, and that Jesus came by in his boat, if he's in a boat, and I don't know why I mention the boat all the time, and he got into the water somehow, and somehow drowned himself, but in drowning himself, came back to life, and then pulled you onto the boat and made you alive with him. That's what the gospel is. It's not just a lifeline that he's pulled you in, it's that he entered our death and died, and then pulled us out of death with him. And our salvation has nothing to do with us. It's only because of his mercy. Remember, but God, God has intervened. It's the great love with which he loved us. And it's by his grace that we are saved. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. It's it's completely a gift. It's only because of God's grace. And then Paul goes on to say, and I guess this is why, it's because God has done it. He says in verse 10 that we are his workmanship. This word means workmanship means that we are his masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. A masterpiece can't create itself. You know, Michelangelo's David would just be a lump of marble if, if Michelangelo hadn't sculpted that. He says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This word for workmanship means a work of art. It's actually the same word, without being too nerdy, it's where we get the word poem from. It's something which is created uh, and through its creation reflects the nature of its creator. Like a, like a painting. A painting isn't just a subject. The artist puts something of himself into that. It's communicating something of his personality or her perspective on life. We are God's work of art. We're his masterpiece. We are God's poem. 
I'm, I was thinking about this today, like, we, uh, yesterday, uh, Friday I was thinking about this. We were dead and God has made us alive. That's a miracle in itself, but think about this. Uh, we were nothing but a rotten lump of flesh and God has sculpted us into his masterpiece. Isn't that incredible? God is writing a poem with your life and he's composing it into this beautiful song that will glorify him forever. This is what it means to be shaped by the gospel. This idea, it, 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 we see this in, it, when we read of the Bible's account of creation, that there was nothingness and then life was born. God didn't start with raw material. He started with nothing. He, and out of nothing, he created everything. He spoke light into the darkness, light that didn't exist. And when God saved you, he spoke life into you that didn't exist. He spoke a righteousness into you that didn't exist. means all we have to do is submit it's like me and my weakness this week you just realize i'm weak i got nothing here god speaks life into that incredible and so being shaped by the gospel isn't about living a good life it's not trying to live a holy life it's i would say that living a holy life is the result of being shaped by the gospel being shaped by the gospel isn't about doing godly things it's about letting god God do godly things through you. And, and how often do we feel like failures, right? I've, I mean, how often, we could do a poll, a show of hands, do you feel like a failure as a Christian? Who's the, who in here is a great Christian? No one's going to say yes to that. Well, if you are, we should probably talk. But I'm just saying, like, like how often do we feel like failures this week? I feel like a failure this week. Wrong attitude about stuff. I'm trying to do stuff on my own. And most of the time we feel like we're not being good Christians. It's because we're trying to look at ourselves and our own performance. I messed up again. I don't pray enough. I don't do enough good works. I'm selfish. I don't come to church enough. I do all the wrong things. And listen, as soon as you keep basing your salvation on what you do or don't do, you're just going to keep on failing. You know what never fails? Jesus' blood never fails. The gospel never fails. The grace of God keeps on giving. It never, ever fails. So that all of us, any of us, all we can ever do is just go back to the gospel again and again and again and just keep relying on his mercy and his grace. No matter how much you mess up, no matter how much you feel like a failure, no matter how much you feel unfulfilled or unsatisfied, or no matter how much you compare yourself to other people and think their life's better than mine or, or I'm not doing as good a job as them, no matter how much you keep feeling those ways, we go back to the gospel and we realize this immense grace and mercy. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. You can't outperform God's grace. Don't be silly. And also, just so you know, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Maybe, you're a, maybe you feel like, I was going to say maybe you're a failure, sorry. Maybe you feel like you're a failure this morning. Well, the truth is, you are a failure. We're all failures. But, but maybe you feel that acutely this morning. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. He already loved us when we were a, a rotten piece of flesh. How, how, could, how could you think you could add to that and make it somehow worse? Your salvation, your life, your future is based entirely on what God has done for us through Jesus and given to us through his Holy Spirit. That's it. And yet, 
even though the gospel is entirely about what God has done for us, when we believe in that gospel, our lives are completely changed. It does lead to different actions, right? When we receive Jesus, our lives are never the same again. We see the world a completely different way. The decisions we make are different. Or at least we make decisions in different ways. Everything we do is based on the truth that God is making all things new, and we become part of that renewal. And so we, we have different prior, priorities. The gospel is not about something we do, but about what has been done for us, and yet the gospel results in a whole new way of life. You see, the grace we receive changes who we are. The gospel changes everything. That's why we base our, our, our church and everything we do and everything we believe on this one message that Jesus uh, died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven for our sins. Because the gospel changes everything. Literally, the whole world is being changed by that. The whole cosmos. We talked about this before. I talked about it last week. And so often when we think, right, we're going to be gospel-shaped, um, we... we we think it's, it's the ways that the gospel shapes our lives and our church. But, but that's kind of a backwards way of thinking about it. We don't try and mold our behavior to the gospel so that we will be gospel shaped. We are shaped by the gospel because of the new life that, that we've been given in Jesus. And so our behavior, of course, is different because we are new creations, because we have new life in us. In other words, our nature is shaped by the gospel, and so our actions are shaped by the gospel. Our actions come from who we are, and who we are is people who have been molded and created into God's masterpiece. And so before you were a Christian, everything about you found its purpose in, in, in kind of temporary, earth-level things. But now as we're shaped by the gospel in Jesus, everything about your life finds purpose and true meaning in the gospel, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Your life is no longer about you. It's not about how you feel from day to day. It's not about how well things are going, as I discovered this week. Your life is just about resting on the fact that Jesus died for you, and that he rose again for you, and that, that his grace is enough for you. So I just want to finish with the last two minutes just to think about this briefly. How do we rely on this? Because this is hard. Again, I'm trying to be as vulnerable as possible. Just this week, I uh, just find it hard to rely on that. Um, well, we say this a lot of village, and, and if you're around more, you'll hopefully pick up on this. And hopefully if you've been around for a while, this is something you know how to do. But let's be reminded of it again. Um, in every thought, in every situation, we ask this question, how does the gospel of Jesus apply to this? How does the gospel apply here? So in our marriages, we apply the gospel. I mean, you'd have James and Caitlin married a couple back with us for the first time. Great. Um, in our marriages, we, pursue, we apply the gospel by constantly pursuing each other in grace and forgiveness. We don't hold on to wrongs because Jesus has pursued us in grace and forgiveness and love. Or when somebody wrongs us or hurt us, we don't, we don't need to wait for an apology before we forgive them. We pursue them in forgiveness because, because God forgave us before we ever apologize to him. When we sin and when we mess up, we apply the gospel just resting on the fact that our salvation isn't based on my and our works. It's based on who Jesus is. It's based on the work that he has done. In every area of our lives, 
we put others first and live sacrificially because this is what Christ has done for us. The gospel changes every area of our lives. Two quick examples. Um, uh, just chatting to friends this week who are buying a house, and the way, they've, the way they're going about deciding and, and pursuing buying a house, it's not what I normally hear from people. It's incredible. They're, they're, not, they're not just looking for the best value for money in the nicest area with the best schools and the best shops or whatever. They're basing on which house to buy. They're looking for a house that will enable them to, to have people over to, to, to share the gospel with and disciple and, and show hospitality and have joy and fun. That They're looking for a house that is, is in a place that enables them to, to, be, to be part of our church community and, and, to, and, and to pursue that, to be able to care for family members really well. That, that's applying the gospel. That's being gospel-shaped in how we go about buying a house. Um, another one, more personal for me, maybe not, it's to do with our church as well. Um, this week, uh, part of the reason why uh, I felt pretty beat up is because we've been, uh, you may have noticed this, but uh, we've received, villages received some criticism online because of uh, our, our, the, the view we hold of, of how God has created men and women and how they interact and relate to one another in the image of God. And I'll just explain briefly. Basically, we believe that, that the Bible teaches that men and women are both created in God's image. In fact, you can't have the image of God without men and women. <laughs> um, and, and so in that, as we live our, our lives as men and women, equally together, we play different roles in, in, in our part of being image, in the image of God, both in, in the family and in the church. And I understand there's different viewpoints in this, but, but these posts online were really hard to take because... They completely misrepresented our views and skewed them and were kind of slanderous, if I'm honest. And I'm not saying this as any way of complaint. I'm just trying to show you what that's been like this week. Um, they painted a, a, a picture of what we believe that isn't actually true. Hopefully, if you've been around Village for a while, that, that you know that... that, that we need both men and women in the church leading and teaching and, and being part of everything that we, that, that we can only experience the full image of God when, when, when we all work together. It means that not only do we just want women to be, I, I can't believe I have to say this, not only do we want women to be present, we need women to be present. Otherwise, we're not living out um, the image of God. Church needs both spiritual dads and spiritual moms as a family. That's true. That's what we see in the Bible, and that's what we want to practice here. And so it's been hard to hear those things, I guess, even from people that, that, that I know and, and would, would count as friends. Um, and so the question that I've been wrestling with all week um, is how do we apply the gospel to this situation? How, especially in my own heart, how do I, how do I apply the gospel in my heart level response to this stuff, to false accusations. Uh, uh, well, here's the thing. And you can hold me to account on this and help me with this. The gospel tells me that, that we don't have to be afraid of rejection and mocking or false accusations because Jesus saved us by enduring those things. That we don't have to fear rejection because Jesus saved us by being rejected. And he also tells us that we can expect the same thing. <laughs> the gospel shows me that the next time I come face to face with accusers, I can extend kindness and forgiveness and love and gentleness rather than 
anger and fighting back because that's what Jesus did for me. When he was accused and when he was facing all kinds of things, he, he, he didn't get angry. He didn't fight back. He was silent and he died for them. In the gospel, I was the enemy. I was the accuser, but Jesus didn't fight back, no. He offered forgiveness and grace. You see, the gospel changes everything big and small. That's why we desire to be a gospel-shaped church. And maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. It doesn't really matter. Um, We all need the gospel as much as each other. We should start every day by saying to ourselves, I need the gospel today. Even just praying that prayer, I need the gospel today. This is the, the one, uh, one of the things I love about Village, and what we really want to communicate, and hopefully this is your experience, is that what char- hopefully what characterizes us as the church is that we all know and experience that we're all in equal need of the grace of Jesus. No matter your role in the church, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter if you're not a Christian, we all need and just need to rely on the grace of Jesus. That's what characterizes us as a church. That's who we are. None of us have it together. Only Jesus does, and he has it together for us. And that makes us all equal. And so when we hold, you know, if we lose that, if we forget that, we just, we just become as a church, maybe performance-driven, inward-focused, we'll certainly have no joy. But, but when the gospel is of first importance, when, when, when we're shaped by the gospel, we become a place of refuge for weary people. We become a beacon of hope for people in need. And when the gospel is center, our worship is going to be just saturated by, by humble dependence. What we, like, I love that phrase, humble dependence. We're just relying on the grace of Jesus. I need the gospel. We all do. And then, you know what's going to be amazing is that, that mission, and we'll, we'll talk about that in two weeks' time, is that mission is just going to be a natural result. We want to share this with other people, the good news. Now listen, I'm really done. I've gone way too long, and I'm sorry, but I feel like if you're trying to talk about the gospel, there's a lot to say. Um, here's one thought, just to finish. Um, Sometimes, maybe depending on how you've grown up or, or whatever, we can think about salvation as just this future thing. Oh, when I die, I will go to heaven. Um, and maybe that's okay. Maybe we're like, well, that gets me through the hard times. You know, it's a faith to hold on to that you know, one day everything will be okay. Um, but according to what we've read today, our salvation is not just a future hope. It's a present reality. It's a present reality. We are saved by grace. We are seated in the heavenly realms. We are in Christ. We are his masterpiece. And most of the time we we find that hard to grasp. Like we're still in this broken world and we're still constantly battering our own self-doubt and our own unfulfillment, our own sin, our own disobedience. We're still grieving loved ones that have died. We're still seeing people we love like just walking away from God. It's just hard. It's hard to, to realize this future hope it has a present reality to it. But we are in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are in Jesus. It's a done deal. It's, it's secure. It's happening right now. Us being seated in the heavenly realms is as sure as us sitting in this room right now. So why, why worry? Why not be gospel-shaped? Why not let that truth form every part of 
our lives? Why would we worry about what people think about us? Why would we be afraid? Why would we, why would we not have different priorities? Why would we not treasure different things? Because here's the truth. God has made us, God has, we were dead and God has made us alive. We were rotting and God has made us his masterpiece. That's the truth. Our future, this is our future hope in Jesus and it's our present reality. And so let's just keep reminding each other of that. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at applying that in mission and in community because this is the natural outworkings of, of the gospel when we believe it. Jesus buried, Jesus died, Jesus was buried. He rose again. And he ascended to heaven. That's the gospel. And it changes everything. So let me, let me pray for us.